0: From the KUAM Podcast Network, this is Arlene Live with conversation on island issues facing Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands. Now, here's Arlene.
1: Alex?
2: How are you? Today is the 29th of April here on Guam, and that would be represented as 28th on your side, correct? Yes. So I um, requested an interview with you uh, after I received an email from Bruce Betty. Bruce and I have been friends and colleagues for a very long time, and you apparently have... Uh, interest in the mass suicides that occurred in Saipan Antonian, So, please tell me a little bit about yourself first, and then we can go from there.
1: Well, I'm 26 years old. I graduated university in 2014, and I spent the last four years of my life writing the book. Wow. I live in Chicago, Illinois.
2: And why did you pick this topic?
1: When I was in high school, I read George Pfeiffer's Tennyson, The Battle of Okinawa and the Atomic Bomb. And that's about civilian experiences on Okinawan Island in 1945. And uh, the book really intrigued me. And I went to look for another book similar to the civilian experiences on Saipan. But uh, I wasn't seeing much on the actual suicides that have been discussed in documentaries. But there's not a lot out there. When I reviewed it, uh, the works out there in uh, high school.
2: And where did you go to high school?
1: I went to high school in Peotone. It's a small town about 45 minutes south of Chicago.
2: This awareness came from studies of World War II. Correct. Yes. Okay. So you uh, noticed that there were these mass suicides that have been documented in Saipan and Tinian, but you're not able to find much information on it uh, regarding, or from books. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Um, a search in WorldCat or other library catalogs um, show that there hasn't been a, a general history about the suicides.
2: Now, these suicides, um, are you speaking of the Japanese suicides that occurred?
1: Yes. Um, well, there were Japanese people who Committed suicide as well as Okinawans, but um, even the term suicide—it's a very complex topic because um, some of the people who quote-unquote committed suicide were actually murdered. Um, So it's—it's a heavy topic. um, There's a lot to it. There's many layers. Mm
2: -hmm. Why do you say they were murdered?
1: Well, uh, there were many atrocities on the islands. And the oral testimonies that I reviewed and the archival records all show this.
2: For the sake of the listeners, it is a very difficult topic, but it is a topic that needs critique, and it's a topic that needs exploration, and so I congratulate you for um, the interest in doing this. And I also agree that this is one subject of World War II that hasn't really been explored um, to the extent that it should, and perhaps one reason for that is that uh the ones the individuals who jumped off the cliffs in a suicide attempt that it also included their their children in some cases um were not the local people they were they were expats from Japan or they were Japanese who migrated prior to World War II and had established themselves there as business uh people and the ones from Okinawa many of them worked for the sugar plantations for the Japanese there and of course there were other reasons that they were in Saipan and Tinian before the war many of them were also you know victims of war would you agree with that
1: yes absolutely
2: okay so i'm i'm really curious as to i mean what your interest was in exploring this very dark period and in this very dark manner. Do you have individuals in your family that that died as a result of suicides or is this purely academic for you?
1: I would say it's academic. I do have uh, ancestors who are in the Holocaust.
2: Oh, I see. Okay, then that gives me a little background on that. As you well know, I just came back from there and my mother was born there and survived World War II there. So World War II, um, e- exploration of World War II events is something that I also take personal interest in, and that's why Bruce includes me in one of his forwards. So I'm very grateful that he put the two of us in touch. So how is it that you pursued the uh, research on mass suicides in and Tinian
1: Well, I was a senior in college, and I started at my university library, and one of the first works I came across was not directly related to the suicides or even Saipan Island. It was a scar named Wakago Higuchi, mm-hmm. and she wrote the Japanese administration of Guam. But I read her book, and I looked how she conducted her research, and a lot of it was based on oral histories and archival data. And after I read her work and I had this topic in mind, I decided that I was going to go to the National Archives in College Park, Maryland. And that's where it all began.
2: Okay. So in review of Wakako's research method, did you have a problem with the combination of archival and oral history uh, to be able to produce her book?
1: Absolutely not. Actually, I think they complement each other quite nicely. I really don't think you can have a thorough or complete study without including both.
2: I agree with you. Now
1: You have to understand, too, these military reports, they're not just created by nameless people. I mean, these were officers who were on the battlefield, and they were seeing the same things that the civilians were seeing and the non-commissioned officers and all the way down to the, the private.
2: Mm-hmm. What about the inherent bias of each of those levels? For example, you mentioned that the reports, the military reports, are filed by superiors, right, the officers that are on the ground. Very, very seldom are any reports um, received from any of the rank and file. What is your uh, comment or perspective with regard to military documents?
1: Well, you have to understand, too, these officers were acquiring data from their men. They were speaking with their men. Um, so we do have reports where, yes, the officers are the ones typing them out, filling them out, but they clearly show that they're consulting the men underneath them. Okay. Uh, for example, um, atrocity reports on Tinian Island, the uh, testimonies come from not only lieutenants but also sergeants.
2: That's correct. Now, in Wakako's publication, she focuses on the Japanese side of the story, and some have uh, stated that that's, it's, it's a justification for their actions. Whether that's her motive or not, I think it allows for a different perspective, of course, the Japanese, and that has not been a privilege of many of uh, of those who work in history, certainly not myself. Uh, either because of the challenge in speaking the Japanese language and then the accessibility to them. We have not had that, you know, available to us. I did fly to to Japan, and I did interview a survivor of World War II who was the son of a sugarcane plantation manager. And so I have his perspective, but very limited, you know, ability to be able to source out the Japanese side of the story. So, I think that all these reports, or all these books, and all these accounts, when you put them together, you receive the full picture of what happened in World War II.
1: Correct. Yeah, absolutely. I I did strive to include both Japanese and American accounts, and I didn't I didn't limit myself there. I I delve into all ethnicities that were on Saipan, so. Including in the book, our oral histories from Chamorro people, Carolinians, Koreans, Okinawans, uh, American Marines, American Army soldiers, Navy corpsmen, auxiliary faci- um, personnel. You really need to look at. You can, you, we can't focus just on one side, correct? Or you know, even one level or even one branch. We we have to broaden our horizons here. To as you said get a better picture of what happened on these islands.
2: That's right. Because it's the World War II experience is a collective experience, right?
1: Absolutely. And you know, I've people have told me why even include information about the Chamorro Carolinian people if your book is about mass suicides. But you have to understand the Chamorro people were they were seeing this occur mm-hmm. and the Carolinians as well. And they were a part of the overall phenomenon of the mass suicides. Yes, yeah, so they weren't. The Chamorro people were not committing suicide, as some of the Japanese and Okinawans were, but they were being murdered in atrocities that were occurring um, in caves and jungles on these islands.
2: I'm sure you read Bruce Petty's book. Yes. Okay, one of the individuals in Bruce Petty's book is my aunt Antonetta Ada, and in her account, um, her father. Uh, her natural father was a Japanese officer and her adoptive father later became my extended great grandfather. And so in, in her account, when, when it came time for the war, when they knew it was imminent that the, the war was going to begin, um, her father came back for her and took her from Tatumbodik and, um, And she was with her family, her Japanese family, in a cave.
0: This is Arlene Live, and we've got more coming up in just a moment
3: middle of the ocean but this paradise is teeming with people with all sorts of amazing abilities. Benita baby was nothing but hair accessories. (laughs) I had some little barrettes um, that we were making and headbands our little like knit bow headbands and that's all I started out with and I decided shortly after you know I had been sewing for a little while that I was going to put it out there. Whether it's artists who create visual masterpieces, creatives inspiring others, people who compose and perform moving pieces of music, athletes taking their game to the next level, or entrepreneurs coming up with innovative solutions, there are a ton of folks here doing incredible things with their gifts. And I want to introduce them to all of you.
2: Women, not just guys, women could come in and feel like they're there to train, they're gonna be taken serious, they're, they're not gonna be hit on by dudes, no. they're gonna have their own space. You know, what I mean, they're going to be respected as just another partic- practitioner of, of this martial art.
3: I'm Jonagan Charfris, and I invite you to join me on the KUAM Podcast Network for Full of Talent where I sit down with people discussing their visions and dreams and sharing the secrets of their success.
2: In the avenues of, step, you know, being in the creative life and then what's what's the next thing? Just
3: subscribe to the KUAM Podcast Network on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher platform and prepare to be amazed. That's Fistful of Talent each and every Friday. Thanks for listening. And now, let me get you back to your show.
0: Now, more Arlene Live on the KUAM Podcast Network.
2: And I found that to be a very touching um, account in that he allowed Tatambodek and Anambodek the opportunity to raise Antonetta. As their own because they didn't they you know they didn't have any grandchildren and wanted a grandchild and actually lost their their daughter who was married to my grandfather my grandfather's first wife and so it wasn't a matter of surviving it was a matter of surviving together or dying together and I thought that was very a very moving account in that in that um, oral history how did you perceive that.
1: I believe love had a major um, it was a major factor in these battles. if you look at the footage or the photographs or even read the oral testimonies as you have done um you'll see accounts of mothers um, saving their children, uh, fathers doing everything they can to keep them alive um, trying to get them water and food at every opportunity, even though you know they had to go out of these caves in it was hell. They had to dodge artillery fire, they had to dodge you know, machine gun fire. They could have been mistaken for Japanese troops by the Americans. Mm-hmm. But um these people would go out of the caves just to get water for their families and they would bring it back for them.
2: And sometimes didn't return. And did not return, yes. So Alex, what impact did this research have on you? Personally um
1: It it is a dark topic um but um you know I, I devoted myself to it i i put everything i had into this work and um i really uh became attached to the story to so the the people um, to the photographs uh it, it's a it is an emotional thing um these you know, these weren't just uh, documentaries, um, you know, or a video game. What we see now, um, these World War II video games were, you know, I mean, those were real people on the ground, and they all have stories, and it's, it's fascinating to learn about them and, and harrowing.
2: hmm When you were doing the research, can you account for different times that, y- that you, and different thoughts that came as you were doing this research?
1: Uh, yes, I would say there are moments when it, um, it was difficult to write about this, this subject matter. Um, you know, it's a very, writing is a very isolating thing in itself. Um, but when you're taking on a topic where people are, um, choosing to, um, choosing to die or they are being murdered by others or they're being coerced to commit suicide, it's, um, it could be hard, but um, as I said, I, I tried to stay focused on my work, and I took it sentence by sentence. And I, I think the all these people's stories need to be told. And it's great that authors like Petty and yourself in Higuchi um, have taken the time to write about this subject matter.
2: You know, um, I up in the Northern Marianas now, the humanities council have a new executive director, but I think that the Humanities Council in general have focused on oral history. I know that they've done oral history workshops that I participated back in the early two thousand, or even maybe late 90s, but they definitely are poised to uh, increase the number of individuals who can, you know, collect oral histories up in the Northern Marianas. And World War II, while it is extensively covered, I think what you touched upon is that for the most part, it's from the military attack and defense aspect of World War II that has brought light to all these other stories that can be explored. I still appreciate the fact that you have taken the time to recognize the lives of these people. And I appreciate also the fact that you I articulate that, that they committed suicide um, or were coerced into committing suicide. Can you explain that?
1: Yes. Um, when the Japanese military came to Saipan, they were there before, but when they fully came in 1944 and started garrisoning the island, the the word was, you could not surrender. Um, if you were an imperial Japanese soldier, you could not surrender. And when the battle started and the Americans invaded, some officers and their men took that to heart and believed that not only could should soldiers and troops not surrender, but the civilians on the island as well. It was um, an us-against-them situation. There were the invaders, and then there were the defenders, and there was no—civilians weren't put in that gray area. The the Japanese military did nothing to protect the civilians.
2: Okay. Did you find any stories that were different in Thinian that you did in Saipan?
1: You know, the the really interesting thing is, and I put these islands together in the book, um, I didn't just do a a mass suicide of Saipan or the mass suicide of Tinian because the the experiences are so strikingly similar. Mm -hmm. Uh, What occurred on both islands is, I dare say, identical. Now, of course, the Chamorros and the Carolinians weren't really on Tinian. There were less than 30 of them Mm -hmm. on that island to the south. But more or less, we have the same phenomenons going on. We do have suicides. We have atrocities. We have coerced suicides. Now, the thing about coerced suicides, too, is that a lot of the civilians on Cy Tinian did not want to commit suicide. Uh, they did not want to die. And But it was the Japanese officers and their men who were Forcing civilians to commit suicide, which is why the term "mass suicides" in itself has been debated um, when talking about it on Okinawa Island. Um, some scholars have used the term "mass deaths" or "mass murder" even mm-hmm. to describe what happened on these islands.
2: Is there any information that the Japanese military officials were literally forcing civilian Japanese civilians to jump off? These cliffs and commit suicide?
1: Oh, and indeed, we have dozens and dozens of oral testimonies that confirm this. Then we have the archival records that also show this, you know, the officer reports. And it's not just Americans saying that, it, we have Japanese accounts of this, we have Chamorro oral testimonies confirming this, Korean oral testimonies. Even we have, um, there are. Japanese officers and enlisted men in Japan who have come forward in writings or in oral testimonies and have discussed that there was indeed officers and men forcing the civilians to kill themselves.
2: Was that considered a war crime, Alex?
1: Yes, undoubtedly.
2: Okay. And to what extent were they held responsible, these Japanese officers who forced the Suicide or the the jumping off suicide cliff and bonsai cliff of of Japanese nationals.
1: To the best of my knowledge, um, there were no little to no war crime trials against these men. But we have to keep in account too that a lot of these men who were forcing the civilians to commit suicide, they themselves took their lives immediately afterwards.
2: Okay. That's pretty gut wrenching, isn't it?
1: Yeah, you you know there are there's testimonies of from Japanese soldiers who have come forward and they've said they were in caves and that the the babies would start crying, you know, in the caves because there would be civilians in there as well, some mothers, families with children, infants, and the officers would force the mothers to murder the babies so that they wouldn't reveal the American positions.
2: Yeah, I interviewed somebody who um, had that account in Tinian where the Japanese um, soldier told the mother, Japanese mother, if you don't shut that baby up, I will kill it because it would then give away their location and endanger everyone else. Very, I guess, the woe woe to the suckling child is renders true, doesn't it?
1: Yes. And we have to keep into account, too, that these men were armed. Um, They had bayonets, they had swords, they had knives, they had guns. So these civilians, um, you know, if they did not follow the orders given to them to take their own lives with grenades or whatever was cyanide or whatever was given to them, the officers would murder them.
0: (laughs) Don't go away. There's more coming up with Arlene Live on the KUAM Podcast Network.
2: Buenas day. I'm Lacey Martinez-Francisco. If you're hungry or have a passion about everything food, then I've got just the show for you with me. Each week, I bring you Foodie Call, a show about all aspects of how Iguamanians enjoy our cuisine, preparing it, consuming it, sharing it, using it as social currency, and talking endlessly about it. We also profile people in our community who are masters of their crafts in working with food. Whether you eat with your eyes or can't wait to fill your stomach, or if you're a perfectionist about the process, you'll enjoy Foodie Call right here on the KWM Podcast Network. So, lock in our show by subscribing to our feed on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on Google Podcasts, or on your favorite podcatcher platform. And get our freshest episodes delivered right to your device when we're done cooking them. We'll see you then, and we'll make you a plate.
0: Now, back to the conversation with Arlene Live.
2: It's just, you don't even know what to say to something like that.
1: Again, um, it is a very complex story. Mm -hmm. So we also have things such as mercy killings going on. where These officers were under the impression that if these civilians fell into the hands of the Americans, that the Americans would torture, rape, and slaughter these women and children.
2: It, was that an indoctrination in your research the,
1: there were um there was propaganda um yes stating this that the americans were demons they were devils the they were murderers um rapists uh, there's many oral testimonies from both japanese soldiers as well as Chamorro, uh, micronesian um, korean Okinawan, and japanese civilians stating that If the women fell into the American hands, the Americans would indeed rape them, torture them.
2: Were there any accounts of the Japanese soldiers committing these crimes against Japanese women during the war?
1: Uh, During the war? Excuse me. Oh, before the war, the rapes.
2: Yes. Did they occur? Did any rape uh, of of Japanese women or any women in the Northern Mariana Islands occur from Japanese soldiers before or during the war?
1: Without doubt, without Mm. doubt, there is not a lot of information that I came across, but there are some testimonies that state that when the Japanese Navy arrived, that Chamorro families. um, Civilian families of all ethnicities had to hide away their daughters or send them into the the farms or the jungles to, so that these men would not um, pursue them.
2: Here in Guam, some of the oral history accounts that I've been able to collect account for young women who were, um, their hair was cut to look like boys because they had not, you know, they they were budding into. Uh, puberty, but they they were thin enough to look like boys, or they literally you know made themselves dirty and look ugly and so that they would just not be viewed upon as as a female by the Japanese soldiers. Did you find any such accounts in your research?
1: I did not come across anything along those but mm. I am certain. These things occurred. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. You know, my you mother. Know, my mother is a World War II survivor. She was twelve years old at the time, and her siblings were younger than her. The youngest one was born in Susupi Camp. So, my mother's World War II survivor stories I've recorded, and very similar to what you said about the uh, uncomfortableness and and the huddled in. Not in a cave, but in this case would have been an underground um, bomb shelter that my grandfather uh, prepared. But thirsting definitely was something. Hunger was definitely something that they, Absolutely. yeah, they had to live through. And can you imagine what it's like for a child to starve? That impedes their development, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So you know, our our Elders now in their 70s, 80s, and 90s all survived this, but traumatized and lived that forward. We, we are still living the impact of World War II, Alex. So in some extension, you're surviving with us in that brunt, in receiving that you know PTSD from researching this material. Not an easy material to, to look back into.
1: I'll tell you, post, post-traumatic stress disorder is, um, it is very difficult to live with. Not so much, I didn't receive this through the book, but I have experienced violence in my life in different forms. And, um, and on that part, I can um, kind of get in the shoes of these people and understand what they experience on the battlefield.
2: Hmm. When I started collecting oral history, I, I went at it with vigor and in, in 30 days I felt the pressure of the trauma. I felt the, the passage. You know, they, I walk away with the same emotion and the same experience once they've released that story to me. Did you go through that at all? Did you interview anybody?
1: I had phone conversations with veterans, yes. Okay. I also exchanged email correspondence with veterans.
2: Yeah. Did any of the uh, first-hand account impact you negatively?
1: Negatively in the sense...
2: That it bothered you? Yeah, that it bothered you, or did you feel the pressure from having received it in their descriptions?
1: Some of the testimonies were more difficult to hear than others, and yes, um, I I guess you could say some of them stayed with you. Mm -hmm. Um, Reviewing the subject matter for four years, you undoubtedly have dreams once in a while about the the topics.
2: Yeah. Why did it take four years?
1: It took four years. I wanted to do the best job I could before the 75th anniversary. Mm -hmm.
2: Was that the target of your project, the 75th anniversary?
1: It was, yes. Um, I I started growing very interested in this around the 70th anniversary, and that was the goal.
2: And did you get any grants to pursue this uh, goal?
1: No, I did not. I privately funded all my research.
2: Why did you do that?
1: At first, for the first three years, I want to say I was very private about this. Um, I didn't contact anyone. I didn't even tell my family I was writing the book. Hmm. Perhaps due to the subject matter, I wasn't ready to, I wasn't ready to discuss. I wasn't ready to discuss it, yes.
2: Hmm. And so when did you reveal to anyone, and who was it?
1: Yes, I started contacting University of Guam professors in 2017. And from there, they shared contacts with me, and um, they're fantastic people. I, I really couldn't have written the work without them. They provided so much help, and they did help me root out a lot of inaccuracies and false statements, et cetera.
2: And who were these professors?
1: Well, there were many, yes. Um, so we have Mike Carson. I'm sure you know him. He's an archaeologist. Yes. There's um Carlos Madrid, who I believe that was your first podcast with the scholar, correct?
2: Mm, no.
1: Among them.
2: Yes. Okay. Yeah. I haven't put Carlos's up yet. But uh the first one was Cecilia Kaipat. Uh you know Yeah.
1: David Atenzia. Um, these and uh, the the individuals are listed in the acknowledgment section. Um there's some some names that are well-known. Um, Don Fair helped me, Scott Russell, uh, Petty, as you mentioned before, Boyd Dixon, Darlene Moore, Rosalind Hunter-Anderson, um, Father Hazel.
2: Okay. So, um, it, interestingly enough, many of those scholars are Spanish-based historians. Hazel lived in Puanpey, um and as a Jesuit priest was exposed to a lot of the micronesian experience um the Don Farrell probably the only one in the northern mariana islands did you tap uh, how did you get bruce
1: well, i contacted bruce for my publisher we both have the same publisher saipan oral histories of the pacific war yeah it was through mcfarland as well
2: yeah that was very interesting.
1: When I contacted her.
2: Okay, yes, because she also... So that's that's a very interesting aspect of, of the research, but they are knowledgeable, and I'm glad that you were able to tap into them. I'm sorry that, that I wasn't able to participate in that or, or assist in that, because I've been collecting oral histories of World War II survivors since 2004. Um,
1: it is a shame. It's... Um one of those things, you know, you you, you come across and you're like, "Oh, you know.
0: Stay where you are. The conversation continues with Arlene Live when we come back.
4: Hey everyone, I'm ken Nicholas and I love movies. No, I mean I really love movies. And if there's one thing I enjoy more than dissecting plots, questioning casting choices and challenging scenes, it's debating with my friends and their opinions about their favorite flicks.
0: You can't handle the truth!
4: So join me and my cohort of cinephiles each and every Tuesday for Real Talk, right here on the KUAM Podcast Network. I live my life a quarter mile at a time. We cover best of lists, actors' top roles, and don't pull any punches when it comes to giving props about what's big on the silver screen, streaming, and on video.
2: Ah, oh, I'm
4: just make sure to bring your own popcorn.
2: Fuck those locals forever, come let's go!
4: So lock in our show by subscribing to our feed on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on Google Podcasts, or on your favorite podcatcher platform. Nice week, Dennis. What's it made of? Your mom's chest hair. That's Real Talk, each Tuesday, right here as part of the KUM Podcast Network. Speaking of which, let's go back to your show.
0: I guess the only thing I can say is I'll promise to keep rocking and rolling and making better films. The conversation continues now on the KUAM Podcast Network with Arlene Live.
1: I really wish I would have spoken with you about two years ago, yes.
2: Well, you know, like I said, I I receive information from Bruce Petty and 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 it really is a resource. You know, I I don't I struggle with this even today, um Alex, in that as an oral historian, I am I am acknowledged as such, but when it comes to references, you name I mean these these men are I have great esteem for them and I use them. Carlos Madrid is the main thread of our Itenalta Marianas uh, history series, which is from 1521 to 1898. And that's because he provided, you know, I, I interviewed him uh, as a scholar, a Spanish scholar, and he provided a lot of the information. Um, Atienza, David Atienza, I've sat down multiple times with him. He's also another one that I have used extensively in our research, uh, for our video histories, and Fran Hiesel, uh, um, what's his name, Don Farrell, is is a NMI scholar and has written, you know, publications for the schools up there. Every one of them knows that I collect oral histories of World War II survivors. So I'm going to get at them for not letting me know about Alex Astroff, and I'm very grateful for Bruce. So I'm not, you know, I'm happy for your publication because of the collective manner in how you research this book and that you have, you read your, your publisher. Thank goodness for your publisher reaching out to Bruce and Wakako because she wasn't even mentioned and neither was he. Yes. yes. So I what else would you be doing up in the Northern Marianas?
1: Yes, um, interesting you ask. Um, Madrid and Atinja and I have, as well as Don Farrow and Boyd Dixon, have been putting together a multimedia ex- exhibition for the 75th anniversary.
2: Yeah, the full, the photo exhibition.
1: Yes, that's correct.
2: Yes, and are these photographs of pictures that you retrieve from the National Archives?
1: I did. Yes, I. I just spent three weeks in the archives this April, and the primary objective was to obtain high-quality TIF scans. Um, we're going to display 30 photographs at the NMI Museum of Fishery and Culture.
2: Wow, wonderful. And when, what are the dates for that presentation?
1: The presentation will occur, it will start in mid-June, and it will carry on for about two or three weeks. And then it will go to Tinian and Rota as well.
2: Okay. And what are you going to do with the photographs?
1: Uh, They'll be matted and framed, and they can do with them as they please. Perhaps put them in a museum or one of their locations on the island, yes.
2: What about the digital copies of them? Are you able to share that with others?
1: Oh, absolutely. We've already discussed um, digitizing these images and having a digital repository where anyone in the world can view these images eventually, yes. Wonderful. And to add, many of these photographs have never been seen. You cannot locate them on Google, Yahoo. They are not in any publications. They have been sitting in boxes for
2: decades. You know, it it appears that many photographs of the Northern Marianas and Guam in that period prior to the war or during the war, or maybe even after the war, have still um, need to be, you know, located because James Elke Farley just came with uh, a lot of photographs that he brought from, from this region or from, yeah, from the region, not just Guam um, and give, and handed them over to the National Park Service where he used to work and they will be digitizing them and that will be available for the general public as well. So, it appears that photographs still of this region are yet to be Fully discovered at the at the park library.
1: We have to take into account the, the quantity of photographs that these marine and navy cameramen were taking. To in the archives, there are ten thousand plus photographs of just Saipan and Tinian. Incredible. In nineteen forty four, um, it's a massive amount of data. Now we don't even we have still pictures, but we also have footage of these events.
2: Mm. And we
1: have hours of 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter film that has never premiered in any documentary. And we're actually, um, I collected a little bit of it in the archives, and we're going to show it at American Memorial Park. Oh, wow. Predominantly civilians on the battlefields.
2: Now, when will you be in Saipan to do the, that project with the Memorial Park?
1: It's going to occur simultaneously. It's part of the multimedia exhibition. Okay. We'll have social media posts coming out soon. Yeah. And I believe um, there will be posters and other marketing materials available on the Mariana Varieties and other outlets.
2: Wonderful. Okay, well, is there anything else that you would like to speak about before we conclude?
1: Yes, we were talking briefly about the suicides, and I would like to add that, the suicides have been greatly inflated. Um, the numbers, they're, they're nowhere near what a lot of the secondary literature states. Okay. Uh, for example, we have scholars stating we're, there's different figures given 22,000 civilians committed suicide, 25,000, 30,000. Uh, it's, that's frankly impossible. Uh, mm-hmm. if you look at the, the data, the Japanese sources and the American records, there's no way twenty two thousand civilians committed suicide.
2: We have a similar inflated number with the Spanish Chamorro Wars. It's almost virtually impossible because the population didn't exist. Now, part of the, the confusion on the Spanish Chamorro War for fatalities, if you will, is that yes. the the Jesuits were accounting for more numbers in order to facilitate more money for their for their mission. What, yes. would, what would be the inflated part or purpose for the Japanese atrocities or the Japanese suicides?
1: You no, know, it's Toland in the 1970s, I believe. He said a figure, he said 22,000 Japanese civilians um, died on the island. Uh, his book won the Pulitzer Prize, this was 1970, and it just seems it was bad historical. It was bad scholarship, and people started using that number. And honestly, I think it's just a good story to say that tens of thousands of people committed suicide. It's It's been—there's um, a scholar, uh, she, I believe she's in—she's on the East Coast. Her name's Haruka Teokuk, and she's written about this, the myth of the mass suicides. And the Japanese government was stating that all the people on the island perished, that they died— suicide or they they died as combatants to motivate the people in the mainland to do the same when the Americans invaded the, the
2: Japanese mainland mm-hmm. and so oral history has yet to be really appreciated or accounted for um, even as as you and I know now by scholars because they are so dependent on you know the the Academic or the narrative that's been written by people of um, positions and influence, and they have not. We we don't know who our people really are until we start interviewing the lay people that also survived the war. Right?
1: Absolutely. You can't really even begin to touch on these topics if you do not explore the oral testimonies. We know for certain 22,000 civilians did not commit suicide because the testimonies on both sides state that the suicide numbers were more likely in the hundreds. Uh, Robert Sherrod, he was a correspondent with Life and Time magazine. He gives a figure of 1,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from he wrote the, his book in 1945. So we have a figure of 1,000, and these were the people who actually experienced the battles. They were on the ground, they saw what happened. And then John Tolan, a scholar who was never on the island, states in his publication that twenty two thousand civilians died, and unfortunately people started using Tolan's figure instead mm-hmm. of the people who actually experienced the event. Mm-hmm. The oral testimonies are they're invaluable. Yes, they could be biased based on a number of factors, but we can, we can look at who's saying what and when they're saying it, and if we combine all the data together, if we have five or ten individuals saying the same thing, it, you know, there's a good chance that may have indeed occurred that way.
2: Well, I think that all of the data is biased because we're all human, correct? And so from that standpoint, even Tolan's information is biased, yet he's sourced out because he received a Pulitzer Prize. That doesn't make his information more uh, accurate than anybody else. But in the collective story, when you look at your book and Petty's book and my research and, and Toland's and whatever, you, the, the people really are the authors. I mean, we're the authors, but they're the they're the judge and jury about what information is received and if they really do one day sit back and look at this information about critique it fully you know just by the numbers like you said it is virtually impossible that 22,000 people committed suicide and that would include their children who had no idea what was happening to them they are true victims because of their innocence and and the the, the lack of ability to prevent themselves from being killed they've been victimized by their circumstances
0: this is arlene live and we've got more coming up in just a moment
3: middle of the ocean, but this paradise is teeming with people with all sorts of amazing abilities. Benita Baby was nothing but hair accessories. (laughs) I had some little barrettes um, that we were making and headbands, our little like knit bow headbands. And that's all I started out with. And I decided shortly after, you know, I had been sewing for a little while that I was going to put it out there. Whether it's artists who create visual masterpieces, creatives inspiring others, people who compose and perform moving pieces of music, athletes taking their game to the next level, or entrepreneurs coming up with innovative solutions, there are a ton of folks here doing incredible things with their gifts. And I want to introduce them to all of you.
2: Women, not just guys, women could come in and feel like they're there to train, they're gonna be taken serious, they're they're not gonna be hit on by dudes, they're gonna have their own space. You know what I mean? They're going to be respected as just another partic- practitioner of, of this martial art.
3: I'm Jonathan Charfris, and I invite you to join me on the KUAM Podcast Network for Full of Talent, where I sit down with people discussing their visions and dreams and sharing the secrets of their success.
2: In the avenues of, mm-hmm. yeah. of you know, being in the creative life, and then what's, what's the
3: next thing? Just subscribe to the KUAM Podcast Network on SoundCloud iTunes, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher platform, and prepare to be amazed. That's Fistful of Talent each and every Friday. Thanks for listening. And now, let me get you back to your show.
0: Now, more Arlene Live on the KUAM Podcast Network.
2: So, what do you hope what do you hope for your book, Alex?
1: I want people to know that Saipan and, and what happened on Tinian, it's not a suicide island. It was never a suicide island. Uh, it was really all about love and survival. The majority of non-combatants did not want to die and actually A good amount of them survived the battle. The the population figures show that there are about 28,000 civilians on Saipan before the invasion. Now, fast forward to the American, when the Americans took an internment camp census, there were 18,000 civilians still alive in the camps. So 10,000 civilians perhaps died on Saipan Island. But then we have to break down that number further. Yes, 10,000 died, but not by suicide alone. There were other causes. As you said, malnutrition. Disease was a big one. In the internment camps alone, on Camp Sassouzi, in the camp by Chalinkanoa, uh, I believe there are 2,000 civilian deaths in the first three months from malnutrition and disease and wounds they sustained during the fighting in later. Leather. hmm
2: What a fascinating way to learn about history, huh, Alex?
1: Yes, indeed.
2: And I want to really thank you very much for your interest, however, whatever spurred it, and I hope that that your book will be received. I certainly would like to purchase a copy. When and where will they be available?
1: It's available on Amazon.
2: Okay. Right now, yes. And the title of the book?
1: is Mass Suicides on Psy Panitinian, 1944, an Examination of the Civilian Deaths in Historical Context.
2: Okay. Well, it's been a pleasure. Is there anything else you would like to say before we conclude this interview?
1: No, most of what I have to say is, yes, in the introduction and preface and the runner of the book, um, in addition to what we've talked about here today. Okay. Okay. Again, I think you were speaking about the scholars. It is a team effort to get these histories and these stories out. It, it, you can never have a comprehensive book right. or a comprehensive documentary. It's, the scholarship requires multiple books and multiple documentaries. And I really do hope the, the young people in the island, the students right now, take an interest in all of this, and they write their own publications and make their own documentaries.
2: You know, my mother was at Camp Susupi and her family, and in in the oral histories that I've tried to collect of our family, I kept asking, "Where is? where was Tunanton during World War II? Did Tunanton survive World War II? And my mother, who was 12, could not remember, and neither did her siblings remember what happened to Tunanton. Well, in one of my recent trips to Saipan, I sat down with my nephew, Herman uh, Guerrero, who's a genealogist up there, and he said that he has the identification cards of those who were in Camp Susupi. And I said, would you please look up if, my mother, if you have my mother's card? And he did. And I also asked about my uncle, Tun, Tun Antonio, and it, it showed that Tun, uh, Tun Antonio... Um, died at Camp Sisupi and you know, he was he was already challenged before that. So I don't know if he suffered anything from the war or if he just died from the stress or from disease. And nobody in the family can remember exactly why Tunton was dead, but he was one of the first that were buried at the Chalankanoa Cemetery behind the church. Um so we were at least able to you know, clarify that, to to close the book on Tonton. And and then to also identify that my mother's youngest brother, Jimmy, was born at Susupi Camp. And so that was another revealing information. So the oral account and these information that were, you know, provided from archival information, genealogy, uh, birth records, things like that, place people in a time and place and then you can then wrap around a story um, that reveals that. So we know from that account that my grandfather's mother had already died before World War II, and then we found out later that she was buried in the old cemetery. Um, So we don't know if her remains were were reinterred at the new cemetery or not. So thank you very much for that, and it's been a wonderful pleasure. Uh, speaking with you, and uh, I will inform you as soon as this podcast is posted.
1: Thank you very much.
2: Let's stay in touch, Alex.
1: Have a nice day. Thank you.
2: You too. Adios.
0: You've been listening to Arlene Live on the KUAM Podcast Network. Join her every Monday for a new edition. Log on soundcloud.com slash kuamnews or listen anytime. Scroll down and click on Arlene. We welcome your feedback and suggestions. Email Arlene, R-L-E-N-E, at arlenelive.com. Thanks for listening.